The Silicon Valley Beat, Major Crimes, is a podcast that deep dives into major cases investigated by the Mountain View Police Department. Because this podcast covers investigations including critical incidents and homicides, what we discuss here may contain material that is not suitable for all listeners. Names and other sensitive information may be changed to protect the identity of the innocent. On last week's episode, a young woman, newly transplanted to the Bay Area, found dead in a dumpster. A 20-something immigrant in the prime of her life taken too soon. Her death puzzles investigators. Who killed Saba Gurmai? The one lead detectives had, a lie detector test that indicated Saba's apparent boyfriend wasn't being so truthful about his relationship with her. But was that enough to pursue him as a potential suspect in her murder? This is the Silicon Valley Beat, Major Crimes. But a polygraph, it's not measuring what the person knows. It's just measuring their you know, physiological response. DNA did not make this case. It made the fresh lead on this case. Episode 2, Then and Now. It would have appeared that police had a major lead. Deception indicated reeks of foul play. Or at the very least, that something was wrong. Or does it? The investigation into finding Saba's killer seemingly comes to a stop in April 1985. There are no notes beyond that the polygraph exam showed something was perhaps amiss between Saba and her alleged boyfriend. There was no glaring error, no hesitation in his responses, no obvious sign of a tell that he was lying. In short, it simply wasn't enough. In California, for lie detector test results to be admissible in court as evidence, both the prosecution and the defense have to agree on their use. John Larson, a medical student working for the Berkeley Police Department, invented the first polygraph in 1921. This first polygraph simultaneously traced a subject's blood pressure and respiration. Under Larson's assumptions, irregularities in blood pressure and breathing patterns would indicate lies. But that's for the modern technology, when in fact for centuries, humans have looked for reliable means to detect lies. In ancient Hindu and Chinese civilizations, for example, authorities would look for lies by asking a suspect to chew a grain of rice and then try and spit it out. In China, a dry grain of rice would be indicative that the person was lying. In India, rice was believed to stick to the mouth of those who were guilty. So by April 1985, the investigation had stalled mainly because the evidence trail went cold. And truthfully, that's something that many departments grapple with on a daily basis. In some cases, this reality haunts us. Because who knows what could have been? What steps could have been the turning point if we had just had one more piece of evidence? Or one more lead? But talk to anyone who later worked on this case, and you will hear a unanimous agreement that in Saba's case, at the time detectives did everything they could to try and pinpoint her murderer. But with no DNA evidence, no cameras, no witnesses... It certainly made the investigation that much more difficult. What is fascinating here is just how much work the detectives actually did at the time that ended up being game changers when advances in investigative techniques, chiefly DNA, became available over 25 years later. DNA was brand new to investigative work back in the 1980s. Remember how we mentioned that fingernail clippings were taken during the autopsy on Saba? that the medical examiner automatically knew to do that at the time was extraordinary. 
Why? Because it wasn't until later that DNA was first used to solve a major crime. In 1986, a revolutionary and new DNA testing process helped police solve two cases in which two teenagers were raped and murdered in and near the village of Narborough in England. Here is a clip from a 2017 documentary that highlights the use of DNA evidence in its early iterations to capture and convict murderer and rapist Colin Pitchfork back in the late 1980s. It's 15 days after the rape and murder of Linda Mann and people in the village of Narborough are living in fear. And police are keen to speak to anyone who saw Linda on the night she was murdered. DNA is a long strand, long molecule, which contains within it a coat. And that's a code for how to construct a human being. Because all human beings aren't identical, then obviously their DNA cannot be identical amongst all people. If it were, we'd all be clones of each other. DNA fingerprinting looks at these spectacularly variable bits of DNA, which reveal the maximum information in one easy test about how people vary from one person to another. So we went into the analysis, very skeptical. We did the uh, extracting the DNA from all these samples. We went through the DNA profiling procedure. And the result that came through was extraordinary. When the results came back, it was um, quite surprising, really. One man was responsible for the two murders. In that investigation, DNA blood samples were obtained voluntarily from roughly 5,000 men working or living near where the crimes occurred. The testing ultimately led to the conviction of a local bakery employee in January of 1988. This begs the question, what did detectives have at their disposal in 1985 to help further the investigation of this case? And what would this investigation look like if it were to take place today? We sat down with Lieutenant Mike Canfield, who most recently headed our Investigative Services Division, which is where all major crimes, including cold cases, are investigated. Mike also played a role in investigating Saba's case in 2012 and 2013. On this episode, you'll hear from Mike how the bones of investigative work haven't changed much, but what has been phenomenal is how tools have helped elevate the idea of what is good old-fashioned police work. Here's Lieutenant Canfield. The main tenets of investigations and law enforcement have not changed. We've just added new tools. But as in regard to like how detectives would talk to people then, I think now we would use technology to narrow down that field and start looking at, okay, based on this person's you know, cell phone patterns or their social media patterns, we've narrowed down their main most important connections to six people. And so instead of doing canvassing, where you're talking to everybody at, at a bar or, or everybody who might possibly know this person, we're able to you know, use better analysis and narrow down the number of people that we have to talk to. Keith Wright, a former detective in England, agrees. In an article he wrote for Police One in July of 2019, Wright talks about how just roughly 30 years ago, CCTV was still a new thing and only a handful of private companies had it. Today, it's one of the first things that we consider in an investigation, he said. But in the 1980s, it was probably one of the last. Keith Wright continues, in the 1980s, in the absence of DNA, CCTV, location devices, social media, cell phones, and high-tech covert equipment, investigation in those days relied heavily on interviewing, 
particularly in investigative divisions. The art of the interview was king. If you could find what buttons to press, catch them in a lie and sell them your product, prison, you might just prove the case. Nothing to it. When you look at the changes in technology and society during and since the 1980s, this incredible change has made a huge impact on our lives, both as people and law enforcement officers. And he's right. What will the next 30 years bring? And this brings us back to today. So that's how our investigative work today has been helped in terms of how traditional police work has been elevated by new technologies. But what is the one thing that has changed the way in which we improve investigations now? It's a cell phone. Virtually every victim of a violent crime then, uh, if they were in our current time, would have a cell phone. uh, And that would create a a wealth of uh, volume of information to pour through and look through. So their connections in the cell phone, their locations based on the cell phone, uh, their last actions before the homicide, uh, maybe even where the cell phone went after the homicide. We've certainly had, we've seen those. Um, so, you know, I, I think the biggest change is everybody has a computer on, virtually everyone has a computer on them virtually all the time. Uh, and that just, that opens up so much more information uh, and a whole nother field for investigation with these cases. This then took us to the science of crime scene investigation in 1985. How it was completed, how it differs, or not, from today, and what they were looking for at that time. You know, one of the main tools would be crime scene analysis, uh, predominantly probably looking much more for fingerprints uh, than for DNA, obviously, at the time. Um, But they would also be looking for trace evidence, perhaps fibers that were um, transferred from a vehicle, Uh, onto a person that they could later match. So there was definitely um, an emphasis and a skill placed on crime scene analysis uh, and um, and photography of the scene, for sure. And then, you know, I think, in fact, I bet a lot of detectives were probably more skilled in this in the past, and they would do with so much more writing on interviews and information from people versus, you know, machines and computers, you have to be able to speak to people very well and figure out, you know, who has information for your case. Uh, And I think that, although I don't think it's a lost art, I think we have some people who do a fantastic job. Uh, I think it was practiced more then, and probably in some ways they were were probably better at it then than, than we are as a profession now. Another major difference is the prevalence of video cameras in our society. This wasn't the case in 1985, but today, cameras are everywhere. Video surveillance is dramatically better, obviously, now than it ever was before. And um, it's not just, you know, video surveillance at a store, but they're everywhere. So they're, you know, front doors have cameras, people's personal homes have cameras, bridge tolls have cameras. There are opportunities, and it's not always recorded, but there are opportunities to gather uh, visual data, video data um, everywhere. It you know, it's kind of like the the, um, the old method. We had to go, you know, they may have had to go interview dozens of people to get information when they really only needed to find the two. Now we've got to pour through tons of video data to find something that may or may not be relevant. So we are out there scouring, uh, and I'm looking forward to technology that improves that. CODIS is an acronym for the Combined DNA Index System. It is a national database created in 1989 by the FBI, but that was just when it was created. It wasn't until 1990 that the FBI actually began testing the system with a pilot program involving 14 state and local labs. But even then, 
the system wasn't launched nationwide. It would require an act of Congress in 1994 to authorize the FBI to officially create a national DNA database of convicted offenders. It also allowed the FBI to create separate databases for missing persons and any forensic samples collected from crime scenes. So, nearly a decade later, the information needed to even remotely begin to narrow down who might have killed Saba was launched. That would have only gotten investigators potential leads in California. It wasn't until 1998 that the National DNA Index System was launched, which allowed investigators from different states to compare DNA information with one another. Meaning if Saba's killer was from somewhere other than California, the earliest the DNA could be tested and checked against other databases was nearly 15 years after she was killed. To add to that, quality assurance documents from the FBI were first issued in 1998, four years after the program began testing, meaning that at least initially, the science and accuracy may not have been up to the standards we know today. It also means that over time, the system had to grow. Now, back to Sergeant Don McKay to talk about DNA and its use in investigations around that time. We figured that we could use DNA from rape cases for you know pubic hairs and stuff like that, but uh, that's what a rape kit was for. But we didn't have any really way to, if we had a suspect, tie him to the scene, okay? Uh, but we didn't have any, as I said, we didn't have any database. You just couldn't plug something in and, and find out who the suspect was. That, that was non-existent at that time. DNA was obviously um, in its infant stages, basically in 85. In a 2008 interview with the CBS news show Eye to Eye, correspondents spoke with the FBI's Bob Orr, about the Bureau's National DNA Database. In this interview, he speaks about the importance of the collection of DNA and why it is significant in investigations then and now. If we get people into the database, convicted offenders, arrestees, whatever crimes are able to be put in there, the more people we have in there, we know that there's recidivism, which is the whole idea behind this. We know that someone who commits a crime generally doesn't just commit one crime, they commit other crimes. This is what we're looking for. People who have committed crimes that weren't detected either sometime in the past or even currently, um, this is the way we're going to find them because uh, we're comparing these, this offender or arrestee or whoever's in this database with forensic cases, unsolved forensic cases. And this is how we're going to find them, is you're going to have a hit with DNA that's left at the scene of a crime with someone who's in that database. The more people we have in that database, the better chance we have of solving some of these crimes. And once again, Lieutenant Mike Canfield. If there was, you know, if things had maybe um, at the time had given more information as to who the suspect was, that vehicle, I imagine, would have been a very pivotal part of this investigation. And I would suspect that there's probably um, fiber evidence on our victim from that car. Um, and probably even, uh, I would bet there's some DNA uh, of hers inside the, the vehicle as well because we believe she was assaulted inside the vehicle. Um, so I would expect to see it in a atypical manner, you know, different than you might, in different locations than you might find in a normal car. Lieutenant Canfield mentioned a car. That means that Saba could potentially have been in more than one place between the time that she was assaulted and killed. How would officers in different jurisdictions communicate back in the 1980s? I imagine that the detectives then were like the detectives now, and they knew their peers uh, and communicated regularly, perhaps even more so because it was more difficult to share information. In 1985, 
To share information, more often than not, detectives from surrounding jurisdictions would need to meet in person in order to share vital information regarding cases that they were investigating. Or, it was possible that they would share information by sending it through the mail or by having carriers bring it from one department to another. But, this certainly added time to investigative loads, delaying expediency and possibly solving crimes. Today, however, things like emails, bulletins, and video conferencing and cell phone calls exponentially speed up the process. But, even in the midst of all this technology, tried and true practices like solid communication and information sharing is still vital to the success of any investigation. But now our ability to share information is, you know, with with other officers, uh, other detectives, other investigators, other victims, uh, is has never been matched in history. So it's so easy to push out information uh, and request information and share information with our neighbors, with our neighboring law enforcement and global law enforcement. Uh, that that if somebody has information and they see that request, you know, it is it's. It's a phenomenally uh, great tool. And it's very easy for them to then share that information that they have with us. So not only can we ask, but we don't have to worry about how we get a VHS tape from, you know, Apalachicola, Florida to us. We can, they can email it, they can Dropbox it, they can do a number of things for us to get this information. Or we log into their same portal that they use to, to record it. Knowing all of this, comparing and contrasting investigative work in 1985 to that of the 21st century, Was it possible that this case had a real shot at being solved? Before the 90s? Most likely, no. There were too many variables that had no hard foundation. By the time the investigation stalled four months after Saba was found, investigators had learned definitively she wasn't from Mountain View, that she didn't live in Mountain View at any point, and that she more than likely spent little, if any, time in the city. Also, We didn't nearly have the reach and resources available that we do today. Even in today's high-tech investigative world, cases still take time, can be hard to track, and suspects can still evade capture. Speculative, for sure, but highly probable that we're right about just how difficult this case was on investigators, given what they had to work with in the 1980s. But one thing we do know for certain, in 2008, a fortuitous decision to retest DNA would change the course of this case forever. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Silicon Valley Beat, Major Crimes. For more details about our source material and where we found it, and for credit for the music in this episode, please visit the episode's website at pippa.io.